If you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Jude. Should be easy enough to find. Go to the book of Revelation and head backwards. Uh, Just one book and you'll end up at the short book of Jude. It is short. It is, um, however... Uh, twice as long as both Third and Second John were on on the average. So uh, it is it is a book that we will cover in its entirety today as we finish up our series on uh, what I've entitled "We Books and Weighty Truth." Um, they are they are short books, but we've seen that they have a lot of importance for us today and how we live our lives. If we look back at Second John. We talked about how truth and love must come together, that without one of those two ingredients, either one falls apart. There is no real truth without love. You cannot say and claim that you are speaking the truth and to do so in a way that lacks a, any sort of aspect of love. But likewise, there is no one who can stand up and say, I, I love people and do so lacking truth. Third John, on the other hand, turned to missions and support and We talked about reasons why we should support missions and we should support the evangelization of the world, reasons why we should give money and time and prayer to missionaries. We also looked at many, many bad reasons why we shouldn't. Today we come to the letter of Jude. Each one of those previous two books dealt somehow with how we we dealt with the world. We, we talked in, in missions and support that we are, we are actively trying to evangelize the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and that to support missionaries who do that is to partake in that work. And that is clearly about how the church is engaging the world. In Second John, we did the same. Truth and love. The reason why these are difficulties for us is because we have a world that proclaims that love conquers truth. That if we would give up on some of our truths, we would know more about love. Both 2nd and 3rd John then had interactions with the world that Jude sort of lacks. Jude is not difficulties that Christians have out in the world and dealing with the world. Jude is about troubles and difficulties that Christians have with one another. Specifically with grace and with judgment. Let us read the book of Jude together to see what Jude has to say about these things. The letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. 
But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to announce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished at Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents. Following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these cause, who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of our God. The letter of the Jude is fairly stunning in its beginning. Jude says, listen, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. He wanted to write to them, presumably to encourage them in the Lord, to, to tell them that they should continue the good fight that they have been putting up, to encourage them to continue on their path in the faith. Perhaps it was even to deepen their faith, to write a, a book of theology that would deepen them and deepen their roots into the soil of Jesus Christ so that they might be unmovable and unshakable. But while he has been intending to write this to them, Something happened. News came to him. Someone came in and told him about this group of people that are being led astray. So he says, I wanted to write to you about this, about the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, to encourage you. But now, now I, I can't even do that. I have to now, instead of deepening your faith or encouraging your faith, I need to question whether you are actually even saved and I need to push for you to contend, simply to contend for that faith that was once and for all delivered. Something happened that has shaken Jude's confidence in their salvation and he puts it on certain people, in verse 4, who have crept in 
unnoticed. It's quite a statement, that. They crept in unnoticed. They, they weren't spotted at the beginning. Why weren't these people spotted at the beginning? Because what they were engaged in, the type of teaching that they led people down, is insidious. It, it's hard to spot. It follows so many good checklists. You can go through a book of theology and you can see how this particular theology, the turning of the grace of our God, the perverting of the grace of our God into sensuality, can match numerous things that we think would be good and holy and right. They can talk about the Trinity in deepness. They can talk about the inspiration of Scripture. They can talk about the sacrificial atonement. They can talk about the meticulous sovereignty of God They can teach about hell and they can teach about heaven. They can teach about a physical resurrection. They can teach about the incarnation. They can teach about miracles. They can teach about all the things that we would uphold as good and parts of what was once and for all delivered to the saints. And at the end of the day, they can still say, and you know what? Because Christ has set you free from your sin, it doesn't matter how you live. So they come in unnoticed. It's very easy for them to fill in all of those things that we might think are important. But Jude says this. Notice in verse 4, they were long ago destined for this condemnation. That's a brilliant little, little thing. It's not certain people who rebel against God were destined for condemnation, right? Notice how clearly he defines them For certain people, not just any person, but certain people have crept into this church. Those certain people were long ago designated for this condemnation. God is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over heretics and he's sovereign over the faithful. Jude begins his word with that and he ends his word with that. Take heart that even while amongst the midst of us, there's a very good possibility that there are wolves in sheep's clothing, that God has placed them there and he will take them away. But these people who are unnoticed come in and they pervert the grace of God into sensuality and they deny their only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They can come in unnoticed because they can pass all these tests, but they're a cancer. Like gangrene. It's easy when you've got a broken arm. It's easy when sin is, is no more than skin deep and you can identify it and you can deal with it. It's easy when there is ugliness amongst the body of believers, but it is really difficult at times to weed out the bad teaching. And what Jude is saying is before long, this gangrene can spread throughout your whole body. To use a more biblical or a different biblical example, we could talk about the yeast spreading through the bread. And a little bit of it will go a long way. This teaching is insidious, not just because it's hard to notice, but because it does everything to please us. Theologically, doctrinally, when we read scripture, it can please us because it can talk about all the good things that we want when we talk about Jesus Christ. It can uphold him as powerful. It can uphold him as good. It can uphold him as the one true living savior for all of the people of the world. It can uphold the fact that we need to preach the gospel to everyone and that only through believing in that gospel can you be saved. 
It can uphold scripture and tradition and everything. And it sounds so good to us. And then on the flip side, it also sounds good to us because it also says, and you can indulge in the flesh. There isn't a part of us that isn't hit by that. The Holy Spirit is is pleased at the glory that is given to Jesus Christ. It is pleased at the proclamation of the gospel. And your flesh is pleased because it is released on the world. You are turning the grace of God, the forgiveness that God has given to you into licentiousness, into a license to go out and please the flesh. It goes something like this. All those things about the gospel are true. Christ has set you free and therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They would read Paul, some parts of Paul. And they would stand back and say, so it doesn't matter how you live. Grace is free, friend. You are justified freely outside of the law. You need to do nothing. The works of your, your body, the works of your hands don't matter at all to God. And therefore, it doesn't matter. Sin or no sin doesn't matter. You just trust in Christ. That's all you have to do and there will be heaven for you. And Jude says, that is worthy of condemnation. It is turning grace into a license for perversion. I remember, I've talked in recent weeks about a man named Tully Tavidjan who was engaged in preaching like this, continual preaching like this, to where I had to stop listening to him. He was, he was on websites that, that we would uphold as good websites, the Gospel Coalition. The Gospel Coalition eventually cut ties with him before it came out that this man who would preach nothing but grace, nothing but grace, nothing but grace, was engaged in multiple affairs that his church covered up. There was another pastor, I remember this very clearly, seven or eight years ago. He was a famous pastor in, in the Colorado area. I think it was in Denver. And he had a megachurch. And Tom Brokaw with Dateline, this was a long time ago and Brokaw was still broadcasting, he went out there and he talked to me. He said, when I was a small boy in South Dakota, we just got, we got fire and brimstone preached at us. But you, I've come to your service and I don't hear any of that. Why is that? And he says, oh, well, Jesus took all of that. So we don't need to preach that anymore. That man was likewise found some months later engaging in male prostitution. Right? People who preach that holiness doesn't matter apparently think holiness doesn't matter. Right? It, it doesn't take much. Why? Churches should not. When when pastors get up and will not preach on holiness, should not be surprised when their pastors are not engaging in holiness. These churches were devastated by this. And it just is the biggest eye roll in the world for me. What do you expect? Not only are they perverting the grace of our Lord, but they are denying Christ. We think of denials of Christ like we got in 2 John. 2 John, they say, they are those who can do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. We, we get that. That is denying doctrine. You deny Christ has come in the flesh. We understand that. But listen, you can say all that you want to. Your mouths can speak so many good things. But if your actions deny his lordship, when he commands you to live a certain way, it is just as much of a denial. There are heresies that you can write down and there are heresies that you can live out. This is a heresy that is lived out. So Jude, 
not wanting this church to fall into this error, writes them, and he reminds them of many things, which we will break down into four particular things. First, he wants to remind them that Jesus is judge. Jesus is judge. He is not your homeboy. He is not just a friend. He is not just a nice man. He has not just freed you from your sin, but he is Lord and he is judge. Jesus, man, it must take just an incredible amount of imagination to read through the Gospels and think that Jesus doesn't judge people. Every passage that you turn to, Jesus is pronouncing judgment on people. He's telling people what to do, how to live, and how not to live. It is not just that he does that there, though. Jesus has always been a judge. Listen to how Jude so starkly puts this. He doesn't talk about Jesus post-incarnation, the way we would expect him to, but he specifically says Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Right? That people is not like the Ethiopians in A.D. 38. Right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying that is the people of Israel. Who was it that brought them out of Egypt? Who was it that put plagues upon Pharaoh? Who was it that carved a way through the sea for them? Who was it that carved the sea, caved the sea back in on Egypt? Who was it that did that? He says it wasn't just God in general, but it was Jesus who did that. He saved a people out of Egypt. And at the same time, the people that he saved, when they proved themselves unbelieving, when he said, you go and take the land, and they said, no, thanks. There are really large, tall men in there. He says, listen, I just defeated the greatest army in the world. No, no, that's okay. And they grumbled and they complained. And what did Jesus do? Notice, it's not God. It's not the God of the Old Testament. It's not, he is saying very specifically, Jesus did this. What did Jesus do? He killed them all. Every single one, save Caleb and Joshua, every one of them fell in the desert. For 40 years, it was a nonstop morning walk through the desert as Jesus killed every single last one of them. He is judge. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, man, that is speaking directly about Satan himself. He rose up against God Almighty. And what did God Almighty do? Jesus enchained him and put him and locked them away in the tomb of utter darkness until the day when he finally comes and judges them fully and totally. It is Jesus who did that. Not only that, but just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, likewise, they indulged in perversion, sexual immorality, and pursuit of unnatural desires. He sent fire and brimstone down upon them. This isn't some, some distant God of the Old Testament, which Jesus now is, is not a display of Jesus' love. That guy is evil and wrong and genocidal. No, no, no. Jude says, that is Jesus. Jesus judges all of those people. He judges those who are inside by judging the people of Israel. He judges the strong by enchaining even the angels. He judges those who are on the outside and immoral. Remember what Jesus himself said. Knowing Sodom and Gomorrah very well, what did he say? He said, if the miracles that have been done among you had been done among them, they would have repented. 
Hebrews speaks about how we ever would get out. How will we ever save ourselves if we neglect so great a salvation? You have been given a tremendous amount of light. Jude knows these people have been given a tremendous amount of light and there will be no salvation for them if they neglect it because Jesus is judge. Secondly, enemies are ever-present. Enemies are ever-present. He goes through a list of people problems that these people have. First, they, they speak about things that they don't understand. Jude pulls a very odd analogy for this from the book of the Assumption of Moses. We don't actually have this book anymore, but there are some early church people who worked in this book who reference this book, what they could have had. It's not scripture. You'll notice Jude doesn't call it scripture, but in there, there is this story about Michael the archangel fighting with Satan himself over the body of the dead Moses. And Satan, presumably, because he is Lord of the earth, or perhaps because Moses had gone so far as to kill somebody, is trying to claim Moses as his own. And Michael is saying, no, Moses is God's. The thing is, though, Michael, as strong and as powerful as he is, knows very well that he cannot just blaspheme, that he cannot just charge he cannot slander even Satan with an accusation. So what does Jude say? He says, Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael, who was so strong, knew better than to open his mouth and speak on things that he didn't understand. But what did these people do? But these people, unlike Michael, these people blaspheme all that they don't understand. They, they just speak, they just open up their mouth and talk about things that they have no earthly idea what they're speaking of. Here it seems to be in regards to angels, but my goodness, you would assume that if they're going to do it about angels and things like that, they're going to do it about everything. They're impulsive, like a lying kid. Have you ever caught a kid doing something stupid? Immediately they go to lying. And it's really not so annoying that they lie, but that the lies are always so horrible. Like they're totally unconvincing and you know that they're unconvincing, right? And you're like, just put a little bit of effort into it. Please, sassy it up for me. You know, I know you're lying. But they'll do it right there in front of you. And then they'll say, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. So it wasn't me. Why do they do that? Because it's impulsive. They, it's, just, it's naturally who they are. It just comes out of them. These people will speak anything that comes to their mind because they have no care for what is true. They not only speak about the things that they don't understand, but they throw fits when they don't get what they want. Again, like kids, and again, like Cain. Cain and Abel both offer, present their offerings before God. God accepts Abel's. He doesn't accept Cain's. Cain is jealous and angry over what has happened and transpired. So he calls his brother out and he kills him. Why? Because he's a petulant little boy. I've talked before about how children, when they're two and three years old, throw little fits and some people think it's funny when they act like that. That is a murderous rampage in a 15-year-old and in a 20-year-old and in a 25-year-old and it was a murderous rampage when Cain did it. These are the same kind of people. 
They walk in the way of Cain. They throw fits when they can't get what they want. They also are incredibly greedy, like Balaam. You go back to Numbers 22 and read the the unfolding story of Balaam and the donkey. Balaam is continually paid by outsiders to pronounce blasphemies and to pronounce judgment upon the people of Israel as they're passing by. He's paid to turn on his people. These same people are willing to accept money for whatever, and they will do whatever it takes to get that money. They're greedy from top to bottom. Lastly, he says that they're, they're like the people in Korah's rebellion, who, speaking of Moses, in number 16, rebelled against Moses, saying that Moses doesn't have authority over us. They simply rejected the authority that God had given to him because they didn't like him. They didn't like how he was leading. And so they rebelled. The the idea of all of these people is that they have been ever-present from the very beginning and all the way through. Notice, he only gets up through Balaam. That's Numbers 22, right? There's a whole lot of Israel's history that they didn't even come close to covering. It's not so much, it's not so much, that they're ever present. And so anytime anyone in this room does something wrong, you've got to give them the cocked eyebrow and say, I wonder if you're one of them people. As far as sinners go, yes, they're one of them people. But here there is a, a lifestyle given over to these types of actions. They are among us. They will always be present among us. This church apparently wasn't prepared to deal with that because they forgot that these kinds of people will always be among you and you always need to be watching out for it. Yes, Jesus will judge and that is a warning for us, but we also must be ever vigilant because enemies are ever present. Third, Jude reminds them of the ugliness of the ungodly. Jude unleashes six very rapid fire metaphors for how these people are. They are hidden reefs or they are rocks at your love feasts. That is, they sit there under the water just waiting to shipwreck you and to swallow up the whole church. They will splinter and divide the church so that it goes asunder. They will cause divisions and distrust among the people of God and they do it at the love feasts. Notice what he says here. They feast with you without fear. That is, like in 1 Corinthians 11, without fear that the Lord will judge them for dividing the church. They are dangerous. They are also selfish. They are shepherds feeding themselves. Shepherds who are to guide and to lead the sheep, who are to provide the sheep with pasture, are themselves feeding off of the sheep. Now, it says simply shepherds feeding themselves, but it doesn't take very much to figure out what those shepherds might be eating. They are selfish. They are liars. They're waterless clouds swept along by the wind. They, they seem like they will give to the people of God what is necessary to cause them to grow. They're clearly leaders, right? They're shepherds. They are waterless clouds. They're clearly leaders here. And they seem like they're holding out the promise that I'm going to give you what you need. Just like when you look up and you need rain and you see a rain cloud, you expect that rain will fall from it to give your garden what it needs to bloom and to blossom. But they are waterless clouds. They stand simply with promises, but they never, 
ever deliver on them. They are liars. What's worse than that is they are liars, but they are useless liars. They are fruitless trees in late autumn. Trees that that need to produce fruit. Late autumn is the time of the harvest. This is when you go and you collect trees, fruit from trees and fruit from the ground in order to have food for the winter. We have supermarkets now, so we don't know about this. But trust me, at some point in time, you couldn't get food in the winter and you had to can it and stuff like that. And Welch's didn't do it for you. And Smucker's were maybe neighbors and they might can some for you, but you weren't going to buy a whole bunch from them. So you needed to have all this food there for you. You would go out and you would look at this tree and this tree would be empty. There was no food for you this winter. They're useless. Even when, and especially when, they should be providing for the people of God, even when they should make themselves useful for the people of God, they have no fruit for them. Thirdly, they're untamed. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. The sea in ancient Israel, and we've talked about this before, was not viewed like my family views the sea. We are going to the ocean this week. We're going on vacation. It will be very lovely. And I would be sad if we got down to Florida and we, yes, if we got down to Florida and we found out that the ocean wasn't there anymore. It would be very sad. So some of us are sad in the book of Revelation when we read that the sea is no more. That doesn't mean that in the new heavens and the new earth there won't be vistas that include waves. It does mean that chaos is gone. The land is stable. The Israelites knew this. The land was stable. It was like God. It it was consistent. It was always present and always there. When that mountain was there, you'd wake up the next day, that mountain would be there. The sea is inherently chaotic. These people are like the sea. They're causing chaos in the world. God, in the initial making of all creation, calmed the waters. His spirit came over the waters to calm them. But these people are chaos. They are untamed and unpredictable in all their ways, which would be the next bit. They're unpredictable. They're wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Wandering stars are useless. Okay? Now, they might be pretty, and for many of us, that's all we care about today because, again, we don't need to can fruit in late winter, and we don't need compasses because we have little machines that tell us where we need to go. Okay? But if you were an ancient Israelite and you needed to get anywhere, the stars are what got you there. Wandering stars are stars that are not fixed in their place. They mislead you. They're useless for navigation. These people not only are untamed, but they're unpredictable. All in all, you get a picture of people who are ugly from beginning to end. They cannot be controlled. They cannot be contained. They are unpredictable. They cause hurt to the sheep, and they only care about themselves. Notice what he says in verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. In the middle there, he quotes from another apocryphal book, which is the book of Enoch. And what Enoch says isn't terribly earth-shattering. You could literally go like this to your Bibles, stop, and you would fall somewhere that contained almost exactly the same kind of judgment that this contains, especially if you stop somewhere in the prophets like around Jeremiah. Why pick Enoch then? Why pick an apocryphal book to cite? As he says, Enoch is seventh from Adam. 
already, already in the person of Enoch, Judah's saying, we already know that God was against this type of behavior. All the way from the beginning, the godly people of the world knew this was unacceptable. Listen to how many times in this quotation of Enoch, the words all and ungodly come up. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness, which they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch knew it already. Seventh from Adam. He knew that God would come and judge the world. There is no escape for these people. They are ugly people. Christian, you are not to be ugly. You are to be as beautiful of a person as you can, glowing with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is to be the mark of who you are. You are not to be marked like these people are. Lastly, Jude wants to remind them to have faithfulness with fear. It is easy for us to think that the quotation of in the last time there will be scoffers is to make us think that oh, now things are really going to get bad. But I I can't imagine that that's the case because Jude has been looking back continuously to the Old Testament saying, there is nothing new under the sun here. Everything that they're doing has been written down before. Rather, when the apostles say, in the last time there will be scoffers, is not to say that things have now gotten worse or that things have changed, but it's to reaffirm that things aren't going to change. In the last times, there will still be scoffers. There will still be people, no matter how far the Spirit has gone through. Jesus has now been raised. He has poured out his Spirit on his people. And Jude says, and even then, there will still be scoffers among the people of God. You need to know that. In light of that, then he says, you've got to be diligent to fan the flames of faith. Your goal, Christian, your goal is to build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Listen, we will talk a lot around here about the sovereignty of God in all things, and that includes salvation. You are saved because God himself has done it. You are from the first to the last under the meticulous sovereignty of God, both in your salvation and in all of history. As Jude wrote at the very beginning, those people were designated for this condemnation from a long time ago. God is in control of all that. As Jude will say in 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, it is God who is able to keep you from stumbling. But don't ever confuse that with your ability to keep yourself in the love of God. If you want to affirm that God will keep you and think for a second that the Bible doesn't uphold that you ought to do the same, you are misguided and you are wrong. Jude says very clearly, the same Jude who says that Christ is able to keep you from stumbling says to the people, keep yourselves in the love of God. It's almost, almost like he was doing his devotionals out of John that morning. John 14 and 15, this ongoing repetition, abide in me, keep my commandments, love one another, abide in me, You do that by keeping my commandments. You keep my commandments by loving one another. You love one another, therefore you abide in me. And it's a circle time and time and time again. 
John 16.1 says, I have said these things to you to keep you. He commands us to abide in him so that we will abide in him. It's true. God sovereignly overlooks all of it, and God is sovereignly manipulating things, but we don't get that from our perspective, from a human perspective. Christian, with every fiber of being that you have, build yourself up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit that you might stay in the love of God. This is, quite frankly, an unmitigated, unrelenting, and unceasing pursuit of holiness. Not to gain your salvation, but because of your salvation. You you are not a Christian because you're holy, but by God, you are holy because you're a Christian, and you ought to be so. And straying away from that is deadly, deadly ground, because Jesus will judge you because he has done so before, and there is a litany of people who have suffered under that judgment. Because you can see it written in the faces of ugly people who want nothing more than to divide the people of God, who only suffer with the people of God for their own good gain, who are willing to fleece the flock of God and devour the flock of God for their own personal aggrandizement. Jesus will judge them as well. Remember, you are judged by the light. God has so seen fit to bless America with a tremendous amount of light, and he has blessed you with that light as well. Do not think for a second that you can presume upon the grace of God and change it into licentiousness and therefore escape. You will not escape such a great salvation. Traps, which are set in the wild, typically don't get warning signs posted next to them. Big flashing lights to keep the coyotes away. They're meant to be alluring. They're meant to be appealing. They're meant to draw animals in, only to catch them and lead them to their death. Likewise, preaching and teaching that speaks highly of Christ, the atonement, theology, grace, and forgiveness is alluring to many of us. It can be alluring to us. But you must, church, Watch out for traps. That begins here. I mean, if, if the Bereans had to check what Paul was saying, friends, you really ought to check what I'm saying. Make sure that I don't fall that way. I'm pleading with you for my own soul, but I'm also pleading with you for yours. Because it is easy for men to fall away, inch by inch, year after year. And as the leadership of this church goes, this church will go. For such preaching without holiness, it's nothing, nothing good for you, but its teeth are nothing but death. Grace changes us. Grace is not a free pass. It is not just, just a getting you out of jail free card. Grace works in you to create a new creature, to give you new birth. Grace changes you and it changes your relationship with God. So that now the enmity that was between you and God, both from God's end, that he hated your sin and therefore he would punish you forever for it, is no longer there. And your enmity and your anger and your hatred back to God that existed in you because you were sinful is no longer there. It is washed away by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. 
Grace changes you, it changes that relationship, but don't you ever think that it changes God. God is the same today, tomorrow, and forevermore. He is an awesome God. The same God who thunders from the mountain, the same God who promised, I will return and judge the world, that same God who trounces on the winepress of his wrath and his fury, making blood flow for miles from it, as he judges the world, is the same God who has saved you. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, walk in his grace that you might keep yourselves in his love. Let us pray. Father, we confess that we are not always faithful to you. We know very well, Father, that we fail you daily, sometimes in large ways, sometimes in small ways, sometimes innocently enough just through our fallen nature, but sometimes even through our anger and frustration at other people, we sin against you. Father, we repent of those things. What we have read about, however, is not just people who do those things, but they cherish them, they relish them, they live in them, they breathe in them. Let that never be said of those in this room. Not because we are better than the world, Father. We are only better in the world because your Spirit has so worked in us and has so changed us. But, Father, so that we might live lives of holiness before you, so that we might demonstrate the good, holy God that you are, that we might be holy because you are holy. Father, let us never preach grace. Let us never preach love. Let us never preach these things in such a way that we neglect the holiness that you require out of us. Not to earn our salvation, but Father, because you have already saved us. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.